because, you know, in the end, you know, they sold you the house because they had a problem and you solve that problem for them. And when you solve problems from people, you typically have a good relationship. Welcome to the Get Traction podcast. If you are ready to learn exactly what it takes to become a real estate entrepreneur, this is the show for you with your host, founder of Traction Real Estate Mentors and president of the Traction Real Estate Investors Association, Tom Zeeb. Welcome back to the Get Traction Podcast, Tom Zeeb, and I've got a, another very special guest today. It's Dominic Mason. Hey, Dom. Hey, Tom. What's going on? Oh, not too much. Just another uh, beautiful day here in uh, the world of real estate. There we go. Let's tell us a little bit about it, Dom. Um, by way of introduction, how long have you been a real estate investor? How did you get started? Tell us a little bit about your background. Sure. So I got started in a real estate investing in 2006. Uh, that was when I... Uh, First got out of the uh, the military, uh, got into the house flipping business, and was uh, doing pretty well in that until the economy crashed in the uh, 08, 09 time period. Uh, started picking up rental properties at that time, and then um, really started getting back into the uh, active real estate investing um, about five years ago, and have uh, migrated from doing flips actually more into wholesaling at this point. Mm -hmm. What made the change? Uh, really, the market changed. Uh, we were sitting here watching what was going on and seeing how the um, money that you could make wholesaling right now was actually a lot easier money and very quick money to make rather than trying to go through the headache and hassle of uh, flipping uh, a house. What's happened, you know, what now that the market is back and we're seeing houses sell really easily and especially things that are nice and fixed up, that there are a lot more investors that have come back into the market. And so the more investors that are out there means that there's a lot of competition to get the flips. So when you're actually able to get one under contract, you can actually market it and sell it uh, for top dollar to all these other investors out there who are willing to pay uh, and take it on a bigger risk than I'm willing to take. So I'll take uh, my small little chunk now and be happy and move on to the next one. Gotcha. So instead of when you've been saying flip, you're talking to rehab, flip, fix, fix it up and resell it. Exactly. And you're finding that since uh, since it's a hot market and there's a lot of in, uh, investors, a lot of flippers out there, rehab flippers who they get wrapped up in the business of rehabbing and flipping and then they don't wind up marketing and finding deals. So when you have one, uh, you're a popular guy. Yes, very, very much so. I've also found that my uh, skill set is better set for uh, doing the marketing and finding the deals and getting them under contract rather than uh, managing the contractors and going through the day-to-day, the -day very detailed process of getting the house uh, fixed up and ready to go. Let's dig into that one a little bit more. I I explain that. You said your skill set is better suited to wholesaling. And so we're kind of talking personality, personality type, understanding your strengths and weaknesses. It's a little bit self-reflective, self-aware. And a lot of people seem to miss this. They think that real estate is supposed to be a, a cookie cutter approach to one size fits all. And that's hardly the case, but it, it's a hard thing sometimes to get people to understand. So how would you explain that? I mean, why does wholesaling fit you like a glove and other things don't? Sure. Well, I think I'm like, was like most people when I got started. I mean, 2006, there was uh, a lot of stuff going on. And for those of you who don't know, I actually took one of my first real estate investing seminars from Tom Z back in, it was probably the winter of 2006. So like January, February. And that's part of the reason why I got started in this was thanks to Tom. Um, <laughs> but no, like I said, when I, when I got started, I wanted, I, w I was like every investor and you talk to the new investors, they're like, you know, what kind of real estate investing do you want to do? And it's like, what do you have? 
<laughs> I'll do any deal you got. You want to flip, wholesale, short sale, uh, subject twos. We're going, you know, anything that's out there, we will take on, um, you know, out there to just do because you, you're just experienced. You don't know. You just learned all these great terms. You went to these <laughs> seminars. You're motivated. There's a million different ways to do real estate investing. And I spent a lot of time and effort chasing down things that just ended up fizzling out. And I really had to learn what are the areas that I enjoy doing and spending my time in and what are the areas that I am getting the best results for spending that time. One of the things I found that I did do is when I got a flip uh, a rehab project underway is that I loved getting into and actually getting hands on with the rehabs. And I was in there swinging hammers, rolling paintbrushes and all that kind of stuff. And by the time I get done with the rehab, I turn around and get ready to start on my next project and realize I had not marketed for a month or two, and now I have no next deal. So the idea of that when I get into a project, I can get too involved into it if I want to. So, you know, the other aspect is, is that, you know, do you just want to hire contractors and manage them? And I found out that I, uh, it wasn't a skill set I was best suited for because I would get annoyed with the contractor not showing up and I would jump back in <laughs> way too much with the projects and start doing them myself versus pulling back and being in the, the more management role and focusing my b- building a business rather than just creating jobs for myself. Gotcha. So that's a hard thing to control for a lot of times because people, it's tempting to do the work yourself, mm-hmm. but then you realize you've got your your eye is off of the marketing ball, so to speak. You're, you're you're focused on the deal at the moment and getting it done, which is fair enough. You got a lot of money and risk riding on it, but you don't wind up building up anything for the future, and that's I think where a lot of people go wrong. So how did you? It's it, since you've struggled with that, Dom. What did you? It was it purely a matter of just isolating yourself into wholesaling, or, or were there other tips or techniques you used? I'd say. Um... I went ahead and wholesaled my first deal. I had been flipping for years and really I just got one under contract that it was a bigger project than I'd ever done before. It was going to be, you know, $120,000 renovation of a single family house. It was a 1906 farmhouse that had not been touched really since the 1950s. So it was a complete gut job renovation from the ground up. And I had a great deal on it. And um, I was just looking at it and I know what I, what would happen is I really was too big of a project that I've never done experience on. And so I investigated what would it be like if I just wholesaled this deal? And I actually got it under contract for about $115,000 and ended up finding somebody that would purchase it for, I think it was like $178,000. So (laughs) that kind of made my decision for me. Um, And that person, they did. They went in and put over $100,000 into it. I mean, full electrical upgrade, plumbing upgrade, redid every aspect of the house, put it in a driveway. Um, I'm not sure if they had to deal with the septic issues or not, but they just really put all that money into it. And they ended up selling it for $400,000. So they made their money too. I made money. They made money. The seller was very happy because they were actually able to offload a property that they did not want to own. They had uh, taken it on through a uh, through probate. Uh, somebody in their family had died, so they took uh, ownership of a property they didn't want. They just wanted it to be done with. So I did that one, and it was really easy money, like eight hours of work to make what, like fifty some odd thousand dollars. Sixty three. I think you said one fifteen to one seventy eight. Yeah, you made sixty three grand with fifteen minutes of work, and you uh, right. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> that finally convinced you. <laughs> right. So I did that. 
And then I went and picked up another house under contract and decided to do that rehab. And it took so much time and it took so much money. And what I realized is I probably made profit uh, just maybe, you know, a little bit more than what I could have made if I just hold and sailed the deal right off. Probably made, uh, I mean, I mean it, there was a big problem with the house. There was a... Uh, uh, an issue with the the septic system and the um, whole uh, sewage system inside of it that ended up costing me a lot of money after I had even gotten it under contract. Um, so I made about fifteen thousand on that deal, and I probably could have wholesaled the thing for about seven or eight. So while I did make double the money, it wasn't worth the six weeks worth of work and headaches that I put into it to make that extra seven or eight thousand dollars. That's how I always feel about it too. But it's again, it's a personality thing. If you if you know what you're good at and what you're not and what your strengths are and what your weaknesses are, then you can, if you're smart, focus in on what you're good at and what you actually enjoy doing. Exactly. And I mean, I, and I really enjoy the rehab work. I'm one of those people who loves to build things, but it's not the best use of my money and time. And I'm out for building a business that's going to, you know, create massive income so that I can take care of my family and do other things. Exactly. I'm assuming since you've done rehabbing on your own, you know, you, you, you've done the rehab flips, that's probably made you a better wholesaler as well because you're more conscious of the cost and what it takes to do a rehab. What, what, what would you say some of the, le- the good lessons you've learned from your rehabbing experience? So some of the best lessons I learned from being a rehabber was when I was trying to buy properties from wholesalers uh, and just learned that you know, wholesalers typically were overinflating comps and underestimating the expenses. So the numbers just didn't quite work out. (laughs) Um, It was also about the information you provide to a rehabber. As a wholesaler, I need to provide them enough information in the very first email they can make a decision on. It should not be that there's a series of questions and back and forth with it. They get, you know, here's here's a link to where the comps are so you can look at it. Here's a link to what the pictures are. And, you know, you just upload all this to like a Google Drive or some other uh, site that you can just share it all the pictures with them and stuff like that. So it's just a link in the thing. And then you give them a basic rundown of it. Here's the property address. Here's the um, after repair value. Here's the uh, estimated repairs. Here's a quick bulletized list of what we think the repairs might be for it. And then you give them a couple links to some things like that. So it's really simple and easy. You're not wasting the rehabber's time because if you waste rehabber's time, they're going to stop talking to you. And rightfully so. They've got, you know, they're they're busy. <laughs> They've got things going on. They've got rehabs going. There's issues that come up with, with the properties. They have to deal with contractors. Uh, mm-hmm. And yeah, it, it's the more you can serve it on a silver platter and be accurate about it. That, that's one of my number one pet peeves is I watch people just exactly what you said. They put the wholesalers put deals out there that the comps are ridiculously high, much mm-hmm. higher than they should be. And then they think it's going to cost $3 to fix the place up and make it into a palace <laughs> when it's currently a dump. And you just, you can't be there. You've got to back up what you're doing. With with you back it up with photos that'll prove your repair cost, and you back up your uh, support your statement of value with comps, like properly written comps out of the MLS system. Then you're not going to have your rehabbers arguing with you. So many people want to think it's this great big argument between the wholesaler and the rehabber, but the rehabber naturally has to be cautious. They've got a lot more risk. A wholesaler, mm-hmm. there's really nothing at risk. 
Oh yeah. I mean, you know, if you get a, as a wholesaler, you get a property under contract. If you're not able to resell it, cause maybe you did do something wrong, you typically have an out in your contract that you're able to, within a week or two, get out of the contract, uh, get your earnest money deposit back and move on to the next one. Cause unfortunately not everything works out the way you want it to. Sometimes, uh, you miss under it. You underestimate something the wrong way or you overestimate the amount of interest you might have into a property. And you just got to make sure that there's, you know, as a wholesaler, you have very low risk into it. But once you're a rehabber and you've taken ownership of it, it's a whole different ballgame. You own that baby and you got to get it uh, onto somebody else. Yeah. What else do you do to minimize risk, Dominic? That's a great question as far as um, the, really the risks as a wholesaler are to make sure that you honestly, you're honest with people. That's probably the number one thing is I'm honest with the uh, sellers who are selling me the property. I'm honest with the, the rehabbers and I'm honest with everybody. I mean, I, I've borrowed money from uh, private lenders. I've borrowed money from hard lenders I, and we've run into problems uh, when you're working with real estate agents and you're selling a house to somebody as a flipper and you got a buyer coming in and we identify a problem through the home inspection. It's about being open and honest, not trying to hide things from people and having good conversations is usually going to figure out a way to get a solution that works for everybody. No, nobody really wants a, anything bad to come out of this. So everybody wants it good. If you're honest with them and talk to them upfront about it, like I tell the sellers of these properties when I'm going into it, okay, I, you know, I'm making you a contract offer to buy this property and I may or may not take ownership of myself. It may be one of my, uh, you know, partners who comes in and buys it. And, you know, we're going to end up, what we're going to do with this is we're going to turn around and we're going to fix it up and then we're going to resell it for more money. And what I found is the sellers usually actually end up then staying in contact with them and they love seeing the photographs of what the house looks like uh, after you fixed it up. Um, I think a lot of people feel that the sellers are going to be, you know, mad at you because you made a profit or things of this nature. But I've literally had sellers, you know, contact me after the house went back on the market, be like, wow, the house looks beautiful. I can't believe it. I wish we had just hired you guys to come in and fix it up for us and we could have kept owning it and things of that nature. <laughs> and all good natured people, because, you know, in the end, you know, they sold you the house because they had a problem. And you solve that problem for them. And when you solve problems from people, you typically have a good relationship. I, that, is the, that is the toughest thing, it seems to me, to get people to understand is that it's, you're not adversarial with your seller. They, at the end of the day, they love what you have done for them. They love what you've done with the property. They understand that, hey, you know what? It's not just a house, it's a home. And it, it, that was a special place to them. And they know it can be a special place to the next people, the next family, the next kids hanging their stockings by the by the chimney with care and all. And th that adds up and that, that means something to them. So when they see how what a beautiful job you did with it, it does two things. One, it makes them happy. But also, suddenly, let's be honest, it justifies why you made a profit as well. You didn't just turn around and resell it as is, generally. You put effort and work into it and made it into something that it wasn't. And that's the value play that justifies why you got paid. And so in, in, in some ways, it, it puts, it, for people that are worried about the seller not going to like you because you're making a profit, if anything, that puts their mind at ease because they know it, you made money on something that they didn't really have. They didn't have a beautiful, bright, shiny, perfect house. They had a less than perfect house. Oh, yeah, definitely. And again, you know, they're, they have problems. You don't know what that problem is until you talk to them. But typically, you're, gonna, you're helping them solve a problem.
whether they inherited a house from, you know, a mother or father or sister died and they don't have the money to even pay the mortgage that's on the house or the taxes at our house or let alone borrow funds to then go and rehab it to sell it on the open market. Or, you know, so they can't wait for a real estate agent to come in and list the property and put it up there for, you know, 60, 90 days and a 30 day escrow period because they can't afford to pay the mortgage on the house or the back taxes that are on it. So they are thankful that you can come in and seven to 10 days, give them a uh, close on the deal and uh, salt end that problem for them. Yeah, that's the exact niche of the market, the exact problem that we solve and the exact reason that we have a business. And that's why it's good for everybody. So, mm. yeah, I mean, last, last one we did, it was, it was great. The guy, uh, he, he was living out of state and he would come down to the house, uh, oh, about once every two months, three months. And he decided three years ago to, he wanted to renovate his kitchen. So he gutted his entire kitchen. And half of the kitchen was still sitting in the living room three years later. <laughs> and he called me up and, you know, he said, well, I come down, you know, every other month, every third month. And, you know, I cut the grass, but, you know, I'm down here without my wife. So I probably drink too much beer and end up sleeping on the couch while I'm down here instead of working on my kitchen. And why don't you come <laughs> over and meet me at the house? And we met at the house and ran numbers and talked about it. And yeah, ended up, he sold it for me. And his wife was very thankful because he wasn't driving the four hours down to see the place. And they got, you know, cash in their pocket that they actually used to go help uh, their daughter buy a new house. Oh, isn't that interesting? And these stories are everywhere because it's, it's yeah, there's people with problems. They get in. People, why would anyone sell their house cheap? Um, because of those exact situations. People people get into situations, uh, I believe it's called life and, and living life. You get into situations that sometimes aren't always good. And if you can get rid of a property that isn't helping you, it's hurting you. If you can take the profits from that and finally move on and solve a lot of issues, you're happy to sell and the property's not in top condition. So you're selling at a very reasonable price. Oh yeah. I mean, I'm a licensed real estate agent as well. So, you know, sometimes when I go and talk to these people, I'll, I'll give them options. You know, I could buy your house right now for this amount of money, or if you wanted to hire me as a real estate agent and take on the risks of us, you know, the uncertainty of us going on the market, you know, I could probably get you more money, more cash, Like you could actually make more money if you went this other route versus just selling, you know, off market to me directly and more times than not they agreed just to sell to me off market directly why do you think they choose that ended a problem that's it they really want they want it's that simple they just want the problem over now exactly what's it like being an agent and an investor because it sounds like you're um you know you're, you're using your license to your advantage is hi I'm a, I'm a licensed agent and i could list this property for you if you don't want me to buy it immediately so I, how does how has that worked out for you? Oh, it's been great, absolutely great. Because you know, again, I, it all starts back to being you know honest and upfront. Um, everybody I've heard people talk about, oh, I can't be an agent because I'm an investor. Or I can't invest because I'm an agent because there's all these rules and regulations and ethical things. That's all true that they are out there and exist, and that's meant to protect the consumer. But as long as you're acting in an ethical manner and doing everything upfront with people, there's no problem with it. I'm out here to solve people's real estate problems. Uh, guy calls me up and he has a house that he wants to sell here. And, you know, I'll give a number of here's what I could buy it for you for directly. Or if we list it, it could be this number. And, you know, talking to them, we find out that the house, they're not in dire enough situation that they want to sell it you know, at 70% of market value, they're willing to put it on the market and take that risk. So I can list it for them at that point and get them that money um, that they want 
and they're happy as well. So it's all depending on what the client wants. How can I best support the people who have a problem and get them the most money possible and end their problem? Nothing wrong with that. What's yeah. the burden though? You mentioned some of the, I got to comply with the rules and regulations of being a, a licensed real estate agent, even though I'm an investor and some people don't think those two can mix. So how is it that you mix it? What, what is it that, what's the burden and what do you need to stay compliant with? Sure. So I operate uh, two separate entities. Uh, one entity is as the real estate agent entity and one entity is for investing. And so when the different businesses are doing their different types of marketing, they're complying with the rules that are associated with those specific industries. So there's a lot less rules for marketing to buy a house. And, you know, you can do the we buy houses, postcards, you can, you know, run ads on Facebook, you can do whatever you want there. When you're an actual real estate agent and you're marketing to provide real estate agent services or realtor services, you have certain disclosures that you have to meet, such as listing, um, you, and it's different in each state, but listing the address of where your brokerage is, the actual name of your brokerage, and typically you have to get your broker's approval on anything you're advertising for that. And then once you start talking to an actual person, you just have to disclose that you are a licensed real estate agent and an investor. That's it? It's that simple? It's that simple. And then again, and there's some disclosures in the actual contract documents. So with um, buying a property directly, I have a, a disclosure in there that tells them I'm also a licensed real estate agent, but I'm not acting as such in this and I'm not receiving a commission for my efforts in this. Um, and the thing is, is once I own that, and since I own the company that it's going under contract in, I have an equitable interest in the property. And once you have an equitable interest in the property, it's basically you are the owner of the property or you're the owner of this contract. So you can kind of do with it what you want. It's not necessarily the same thing as when you're being hired and going under contract to be a real estate agent for somebody. And then you're working directly for somebody, which is where you have a fiduciary responsibility to that client that you're working for. So probably the biggest thing is, is when you're going to talk to these sellers, just make sure you are honest with them, but what you're telling them you're going to do. I'm either going to make you an offer to buy your house for you, or I'm going to tell you what I feel that your market value of the property is if you went to sell it. Perfect. Now, Dominic, a lot of times I uh, hear agents will tell me, uh, hey, you know, my broker's not cool with that, or my broker says it's illegal, or my broker doesn't want to deal with it. So I, I, my advice to them is always take your license and go hang it somewhere else. Hang it at a different brokerage that is investor-friendly. So have you dealt with that, and what's your general advice? It really is broker-to-broker specific. Um, I would say that if you do have questions and you want to stay with the same brokerage, have a conversation with them and then talk to the uh, – state realtor legal department and find out to make sure you're compliant with in your state with what those laws are. And so, you know, there, each state is a lot of difference on what they allow real estate investors to do. And we're here in the uh, Maryland, DC and Virginia area. And I'm, I, and each three of them have different rules and regulations for it. So we have to be compliant for investing and for being a real estate agent, I'm licensed in all three and each one of them is different. And what I have to disclose in each one is different. And so I have made the decision to solely focus on my investing in Virginia because it's a much more investor friendly state than some areas of DC and Virginia, even though I know that there's uh, money to be made in those situations. Mm -hmm. And again, you know, talk to your broker. If they don't like what you're doing, 
explain it to them. If then you talk to your state legal department, which every uh, state has is a, a bunch of lawyers who are familiar with the realtor laws and you can send it usually an email out to them and get the information and have them make a judgment on what's going on and help try and educate your broker on how you're trying to work with it. But if not, like you said, I mean, there's a thousand different brokers out there who will help you out and make sure you uh, can do what you want to do to best support uh, what you want and help your potential clients. Oh, yeah. And Dominic, you mentioned at the beginning, I want to talk a little bit about your your transition uh, into real estate investing. You mentioned at the beginning you were in the service. Which branch of the service were you in? I was in the Marine Corps. Awesome. What was your role in the Marine Corps? I was a combat engineer, which means I uh, blew things up. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> now you try to not have deals blow up, even though you have experience in making things blow up. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Very good. Now, what was it like transitioning out of a... Um, I know a lot of people do with this. You know, Marine Corps is a, is a highly structured environment with a with a very serious uh, chain of command. And now you're completely on your own. W- what was that transition like? Great question. Great question. I'd say the, um, the first thing was that it, uh, it's a completely uh, different environment. And I think a lot of military people find this when they get out is that, uh, you know, you don't have quite that closed-knit uh, camaraderie that you do in it. So you need to find uh, a, new, a new group and a new family. And being in the real estate world can be a very uh, lonely job. Um, you know, you're working, trying to get working with clients or you're working with uh, investors or you're working with uh, sellers, things like that. You know, you don't usually have a, a close knit group. So getting in and joining an organization and getting to know people and working with a close group of people, not necessarily in partnerships, but at least to have friends to commiserate with and things of that nature is really um, a great thing to do. And that's one of the great things about being uh, associated with a, a real estate investors association is you can just get into there with friends. And I've made some friends who I've kept for guys been since I started in 2006. And I still talk to these guys and it's great because I can call them up and say, Hey, I have this property, this lead over here. I'm not sure what to do with it. What do you think? You know, and we'll share leads back and forth, you know, Hey, I just, you know, I saw this thing over here and I thought it might work for you and send it over to this guy. We can just go back and forth or we're just having a bad day. Um, Call them up and talk to them about it. So that's one of the things that I I had found very helpful once I got out was to find a group of friends who were in in like mindset, actually doing deals. It helped to be around the, in the community amongst the same types of people with the same goals. Exactly. Exactly. Cause none of them, I mean, my, my military friends really, you know, we're off doing military stuff and um, you know, some of the other people in our neighborhood, they had the nine to five job type of mentality and they didn't quite understand what we were doing uh, and why we were doing it and why we made these decisions and how sometimes, you know, 1130 on a Monday, I'm sitting here in a a t-shirt and sweatpants having a conversation with somebody. And, but then again, I could be talking with a seller at nine o'clock at night with a flashlight crawling through a crawl space. (laughs) <laughs> it's just a different lifestyle and you got to get used to that different lifestyle. It is. You have an odd schedule at times and you have some odd uh, things to do, like, you know, mm-hmm. crawling through a crawl space. And it, that also, the pay can be unsteady. So speak to that. How did you, I mean, you went from a very, I mean, no, a government paycheck effectively. Oh, yeah. There's nothing first more regimented than that. <laughs> yeah. First and the 15th, no matter what. And you knew you were getting paid because Uncle Sam ain't going out of business. Right. Yeah. And you knew what your pay raise was going to be every year. And then, you know, uh, it was just a very, um, 
It was a difficult transition. Um, I don't think I thought about it enough when I first got out. Um, and then when, cause I mean, real estate investing in the 2006, 2007 period was almost easy. You'd buy something, uh, put a little bit of money into it and almost through just the, the market would, it would appreciate 10% without you doing anything to the house, let alone what you did to the house and bring it up. <laughs> but then things got bad uh, and really changed the whole market time set. And it um, realized that, you know, when you go through a, a whole deal and at the end of the deal, you're only making a couple hundred bucks, you start sweating and you start worrying about things. And then you got to, really transition that whole mindset of it. So some of the things we've done in place is that we've made sure we've put cash savings into a position so that we can ride the ups and downs of being full-time in real estate. And so that, you know, if we do have a, we know there's going to be a bad month. And so when there's a bad month, you know, we have the savings already set aside and we can work right off of those savings. So a little bit of, I'd call that staying power. So you, you have the, you have the ability to weather the storm until it gets nice and sunny again. Oh yeah, I mean, you're going to go one month or, you know, I you know, I've had this year where, you know, one month we made a third of what we need to make just to even uh cover operating expenses. Mm -hmm. Uh and then the next month we made $60,000 in a month. <laughs> it's the way it goes. It, there's nothing you can do about it in this business because that's what it is. The only thing you can do is set the uh, set yourself up that you have, you know, three to six months of operating income out there and available, so that you're not stressed out about every deal. And you know, the key to know it is is the solution to everything is just get another uh, property. The next property is going to solve all your problems. So you just got to keep marketing, keep going for it, get that next property, and you'll be amazed about how much that one deal can save it. And real estate, uh, as an agent or as investing, it's the one industry where you can go from having your worst time ever and literally sobbing on your partner's shoulders about how bad <laughs> things are and questioning why you ever made this decision and cursing Tom Z forever talking to you about it. And Chris Dad <laughs> was the worst thing I ever read in my life. And then the next five days you have, you know, you put a, over $100,000 in profit under contract. I mean, that happened to me in the month of um, March. You went from the extreme high or the extreme low to the extreme high? Oh, yeah, exactly. And it was just, fact, you know, we, we just kept plugging away. And that's my, you know, I'd say the key that uh, I've learned after doing this for 13 years is discipline. Um, discipline is the key to being successful in this. Um, you're going to have good days. And you're going to have bad days. You just got to, you can't take the good days too high, the bad days too low. You got to keep doing it. So we put in place milestones for each day or checklists for each day. What we need to accomplish. So I need to do, you know, about two hours, three hours of prospecting so I can find new deals every day, no matter what. And I need to do that, whether I'm getting um, great responses from it or I'm getting zero responses from it. And I need to do that every day for five days, every week, so that I can hit my uh, numbers by the end of the month. And by the end of the month, everything adds up and it usually looks out pretty good. Uh, and if not, then it's going on to the next month and that month will make up for it. So over the course of a year, you've done Two to, five, two to three hours every day of prospecting, you're going to be successful. So you don't worry too much now about the downtimes because you know the uptimes are coming as well. And what you're looking for is how it averages out over the course of a year. Right. 
Yeah, that's a tough pill for a lot of people to swallow. That's one of the reasons why I want to make sure we put a uh, sharp enough point on that point. Yeah, and I'd say come up with a plan. What is it going to take? What is your goal? You know, is your goal to be a full-time real estate investor? Is it part-time real estate investor? Do you just want to wholesale? Do you want to be a landlord, uh, flipper? And write it all out. And then, you know, I want to do this many deals a year and then back trip track off of that. You know, if you want to be a full-time investor, you need to know how much it costs you every month to live and then how much it's going to cost you every month for your business. Work two jobs, be dual career for until you can save up three to four months of that income to put into an uh, just a savings account. And then that will give you the comfort to know that, you know, I at least have three months to live on and you, it's not going to take you three months to get the next deal. Because <laughs> if you got to be able to put that money in the bank, you know that you can do the deals. Gotcha. So having that that cushion, that cushion of money in the bank, that staying power helps uh, helps guide you through and stabilize you when you need it. Right. What do you spend a month on marketing, Dominic? It's going down. Um, I'm doing less on it because um, I'm really been testing a lot of different things and finding out what's working and what's not working for me. And I've found that some of the things that are working best for me are when I'm being most proactive with the um, my prospecting is where I'm actually aggressively going out and um, doing my driving for dollars, doing my uh Call it calling for the FISBOs and the uh, expireds and um, probate phone calls and things of that nature. Because what I found is everybody's mailing nowadays. The amount of mail that people go into. Last deal we did with this uh, probate situation, not my last deal, but um, probate situation and the guy's sister died. And they received, I want to say it was like 70 pieces of mail in the first 30 days after they started their probate process. <laughs> And to me, it's like, you know, mailing is easy. Um, but, you know, if everybody's doing something, I tend to, I want to, I want to zig when everybody else is zagging. So yeah. I'm going to go a different direction and I'm going to try and get that person's contact information and give them a phone call and talk to them directly. And I found for me, being on the phone is the best way for me to get, nurture a lead and get a, a, a time to go and meet with them. So you're able to, you're able to set yourself apart by getting on the phone if everyone else is mailing. Now, I know some parts of the country, nobody's mailing. And so mailing sets you apart. And other times it's the phone call sets you apart. Or other times it's the knock on the door. You've got to tweak it for what's working, what fits your personality and what's going to fit what's going on in your market. Right, right. And your time and budget. You know, if you have a big enough budget, you know, and you can just keep putting out enough mailings and you're going to hit, you know, a broader space, then, you know, you're eventually going to get the, the return on your investment for it. Mailings do work. It's just, you got to make sure you're doing enough of it. Make it work and be different with your mailings. Um, do something different with your mailings than what everybody else is doing. <laughs> yeah. I usually find that if the crowd is all heading in one direction, then the real solution is literally an exact opposite 180 degrees turn from where they are. Just go the opposite direction. You almost can't, for anything in life, you almost can't go wrong to do the opposite of what the crowd wants you to do. So with that, you know, I'm probably spending a little bit more time with my marketing than I am with my spending my money on marketing. Um, so, but we're still spending, I'd say about $2,000 a month uh, on direct different marketing campaigns or different systems set up for it. You know, the driving for dollars is still one of the best ones out there. The courthouse research, there, there's not enough people who are doing that. 
Ah, and therefore, because it takes an ounce of effort, so anything that takes an ounce of effort is wiping out 98% of your competition right there. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Amazing how that always works. And I know it's hard to do when you're, you know, a dual dual career person, you're trying to do this on the side and build that initial cash flow. So yeah, it might be that you just focus on the, um, the mailings because you can get those out with very little effort and you're just paying for it. And, but you don't need as many deals to live off of either. You're just trying to get that extra cash to build that base to go into. Gotcha. So kind of the discipline is also combined with some patience. Yeah. I mean, if you're doing the mailings, um, you know, let's say you're mailing the uh, out-of-state owners um, and you know that you're going to mail, you get all the out-of-state owners for this area and you know you got a, th- a list of a thousand, you just get on a schedule where you're mailing, you know, th- 330 every quarter. And so that person is receiving a mail from you every quarter or you, you do a 330 mailings per a um a month that means every quarter everybody's getting hit at least one mailing from you and they might call you up and be like hey i've gotten four postcards from you this year what's up time to talk i mean that's that's the kind of you know discipline it takes to uh, get the leads they got four postcards in a year same postcard same message um and that's the person they might call back versus when they get one or one maybe two from somebody over the course of a year or if you want to get aggressive with it, mail them every month. Mail them every month, sure. Depending on depending on what it is, but don't you get? Wait a second, don't you get? Aren't you worried or bothered by the fact that I mean, if they're only responding after four mailings, they have ignored you at the other three, and doesn't that bother you that the, that you're not you're not getting a grand slam your first time up at plate? Singles and doubles win games too, Tom. <laughs> it, it really does. If you're going to be in this for the long haul, you got to learn to appreciate a good, you know, a single that's just going to hop over the shortstop's head and <laughs> land in yeah. there. And uh, that's that's as good as you can get sometimes. And so you just got to stay on it and know that that single, you know, and then you steal second, and then somebody else hits a double, and you you, you score to run. Uh, you manufacture it any way you can. So you know, even if I'm only making, you know, I've I've done deals as little as five thousand um, dollars. And I've done deals with 60 some odd thousand dollars. It's going to be everywhere. And the little ones add up as much as the big ones. Cause you know, then you can get onto social media and start advertising what you're doing. And you're going to be amazed how many people will call you up and be like, Hey, so my brother, sister, cousin has their house. <laughs> and I mean, social media is a great place to be on as far as uh, getting in contact with your sphere of influence and letting people know what you're doing. You'd be surprised how many people were going to call you and talk to you about something. I had a family member who called me up on that um, one I was telling you about that we got, they got 70 pieces of mail from probate and they called me up and they, Dom, I don't know what to do. And I just walked them through it and I helped them get through the deal. And they actually uh, allowed me to make a little bit off of it, which is great, but it is what it is. Yeah. You know, that wasn't anything amazing, but it just, you got to be in the business to, you know, this business is about people. I think the numbers are the numbers when it comes to whether a deal works or not, but this business is about people. Um, People have problems and you're going to help people solve problems. And the more you can do that and the more you can let everybody know that you're a problem solver, the more people are going to call you and contact you. What do you wish that you um, would have known then? Right, we all get to that point where, hey, if if I knew then what I know now, what's that for you? What would you have liked to have known back then? I think a lot of what we were just talking about about the fact is that trust that the next deal is going to come. Um, I think I got scared for a little while there, and um, it wasn't always 
able to trust that the next deal would come in because I couldn't see it down the road. After doing it now for a while, if you're disciplined and you're doing your regular marketing, the deals are going to come regularly. Now you were one, you mentioned being at one of my first seminars and that was literally back in the day. It was, it was one of my first uh, training events and uh, you've come a long way since then. I'm glad I got you into it. And you also attend my current rapid cash generator implementation boot camps. Now, why, why are you still attending my events if I got you started, you know, 15 plus years ago? You always got to be learning. Uh, you're going to learn new stuff no matter where you go, whether it's just a, a slight negotiating technique. Um, you're, you go over things sometimes in your current class that you went over a decade ago and I'd forgotten about. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Or there's things that you've said during your current things. And it's like, you know, I think, I think in the last three years, I've been to like two of your different training events. And I know there were things you said in the one. I was like, yep, that's a good thing. I got to write that down. I wrote it down. And then I forgot about it until I went to the next event and you said it again. And like, oh, yeah, I got to start doing that. <laughs> you and wrote then, it down again. <laughs> and then write it down again. And I started doing it and some of it. But there's always new things to be learning. Um, I, I, I really appreciate how you put together a structure of how to run the business as a business. It's it's not a get get rich quick scheme. It is a long sustainable business plan that you can work through it with a, a structure involved into it. And that structure is what really is going to get you through the good times and the bad times because you got to keep implementing the same repeatable processes over and over again. And if you do that, you know, once you get that first taste of success, you got to keep implementing these same basic principles and you will get to the results that you're looking for. So what would you say is the single best thing I've taught you? The flinch. The flinch. Yeah, that, that wasn't just you making noise. Let's make nope. sure that doesn't get edited out. All right, that was actually the uh, one of the things that just just pausing and waiting, learning how some of the negotiating techniques, uh, being quiet. Um, you know. You know, help me help you. And again, I'm going to need you to do better than that. You know, little things like that. Uh, those are things that I really learned. Um, and then, I, God, it's been so long. I've taken so many training seminars and I've really, you know, kind of meshed everything together. But I know I definitely used your um, lead intake sheet, the caller sheet, as my base that I created everything off of as far as the script goes. Because I know one of the hardest things people do is once they get somebody to call them, what what do you do now? I'm on the phone with somebody. And just having that script that you produce and that one simple worksheet, one page, you just work your way through it and ask them the questions that are on it. And then just sit and wait and listen and let people talk. That's been a tricky thing for a lot of people is um... – you know, I, I've given you the questions to ask, and, and they're simple enough, you know, ask and then listen. But the listening part is the tricky part for people. It's letting them, um, letting them tell you their story, and they will give you the keys to how to unlock uh, that deal for them and how to unlock the profits for you. Definitely. Definitely. Like we've been talking about the whole time. It's uh, about problem solving. Learn what the people's problems are, and then don't make assumptions about what their problems are or what they're looking for. Uh, let them tell you what it is and then just lay it out for them and let them make a decision on it. Dominic Mason, anything else we should add? 
This is a great business to be in. Um, it's probably one of the most popular ones out there as far as people spending a lot of money on a lot of different things to get started in the business. Some of the seminars out there that I've seen and people that are doing, um, they're really complex and very big. So I really would recommend anybody who's starting this business get started in wholesaling. Seminar like Tom's is a perfect place to get started with this rapid cash flow generation. In three days, you learn all the things that you need, you get all the forms that you need, and then you're at very low risk. With the wholesaling, you get to practice your marketing to be able to identify the um, people who are out there and the sellers who need your help. And then you're able to get them under contract. And then the, some of the most difficult things are things that are going to take the biggest risk for you. You've all set that to another party and you can really make a lot of money in very few hours in doing this. Um, it's about setting a, a good system in place. And once you get this up and running and it's humming along, you can then take this and expand it out to however you want to expand it out. So wholesaling is where I would always recommend somebody to get started in the uh, real estate investing business. Cause then you can easily easily take this into being a landlord because you're keeping the properties that you have. You could take this into flipping because you're doing that. You could then make some money here and then get into the private lending area of it and start talking about, you know, IRAs and pr private money and all that kind of stuff. It's, it's the best place to get started. Yeah. You've got to know the basics and you have to master the basics and wholesaling at the end of the day, it's the basics. It's, it's marketing, it's negotiation, it's legal contracts and control. So you get paid. Right. 100%. Is it seriously? No, I mean, you said this. I know some people doubt me. Do I really teach you everything you need to know to get your wholesaling business going in three days? I mean, three days, most people are used to spending four years, six years, eight years in at university to be able to do something professionally. Is it seriously just three days? Yeah. I mean, most people spend four years in college to get, get a degree and then they go to a job and get trained on the job. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> There's very few degrees again. you go into and you walk into a business and you're, you know, the all-star rock star coming out of college. Um, I mean, they don't even do that in the NFL. But the, uh, so what you're <laughs> learning in those three days is very practical, implementable stuff. Um, you know, you, you can't, you're, you're not paying Tom to do the business for you. You're going to have to get out and do the legwork and actually Im implement what he's teaching you. But if you start implementing it, I mean, what do you have? 80 some odd different marketing techniques. If you implement five of them and you hit those five hard for six months, you're going to start getting leads. And then you go to the next book and pick it up. And what do I do once I get leads? And now, now I got a contract. What do I do once I get a contract? The, the, the difficult part is to uh, get started and then stay started. Uh, and then just not give up on it and stay focused on it and realize that it's going to work out if, if the program works, if you work the program. Well said, Dominic. <laughs> Thank you. So, yeah, I mean, overall, I mean, uh, you know, Tom, I love what you and Carolina do. It's a, a great organization. You guys are really one of the top notch ones out there. Uh, but as far as real estate investing goes, it's something that uh, has really just resonated with me. It hasn't always been um, the nicest business to me, but it's been a business that I love and has treated me very, very well. We've made uh, a lot of money in the business. We're very successful. It's allowed me freedoms and opportunity to do things with my family and my kids that I would never have if I was working, you know, a corporate job, um, you know, and you say nine to five job, but nobody works nine to five anymore. You're working, you know, seven to seven, most people <laughs> and you count in the commute and all those different things like that. I really don't think I would have, uh, I'd be as happy as I am in my life and my family if it hadn't been for real estate investing. 
So even those days where it knocked you down or those, you, you know, you referred to it's not always pleasant. That's still worth it because it's better than the consistently not very pleasant day job. Oh, yeah. I mean, I am happier overall than I've ever been. And it's because um, I've taken everything that I've learned and applied it into a business that I own and operate and get to make the rules for. And I'm not sitting at a desk job, you know, dealing with the headaches of things that I don't want to deal with, or they're not making me happy. You know, it is a kind of a commission-based business. So you got to be understanding that you're going to roll with it. And some days are going to be better than others. And the risk of not getting a paycheck every month, but you know, the rewards can be that you could hit one, uh, one home run and make 60 some thousand dollars in an afternoon. Oh, it's a beautiful thing. Oh, I'm mm-hmm. glad it's, uh, Glad it's worked out well for you because that certainly is, um, I, I think it's a testament to people that, you know, get in there, buckle down, get focused, stay focused and make it happen because it's, it's at the end of the day, it sounds like it was all up to you to make it happen. Correct? hundred percent. You know, it's about that discipline to get up and do it every day, no matter what. Now there's that D word again, discipline. Uh, it's amazing how much it can really improve people's lives. And it's amazing. I think the the thing that, you know, most people think that, you know, time in the military, oh, you're very disciplined and things of that nature. And that there, they had a very good structure. And, you know, the structure is what kept you disciplined. Somebody yelling at you is what kept you disciplined. <laughs> exactly. It's somebody, you know, right behind you there if you weren't going to do it. So now the discipline is, is that there's nobody who's, uh, I control it all. So it's the self-discipline uh, that I think a lot of things you need to make sure you focus on that, you know, getting up at five 30 every morning, no matter what, even if I was out till 11 o'clock at an event or talking to a seller and things like that, still waking up. So I know that by eight o'clock in the morning, I can be sitting at my desk uh, doing the prospecting that needs to get done because without the prospecting and without holding that prospecting time sacred, that nothing else is going to come from it. So in order for you to get the total freedom that you've been able to achieve, it's a matter of making sure that you carve out the time to do this and not let everything else in life get in your way. Exactly. Prospecting is the number one thing. Nothing have, nothing should occur before prospecting because that's what's going to drive my entire business. Yeah. You get the marketing right or you've got nothing. You've got a bunch of knowledge you'll never get a chance to use because you're not, you're not marketing to get deals. Yeah, you can be the re- best real estate investor, best real estate agent, best anything. Nobody knows about it or nobody knows to call you. You're not going to do anything. Dominic, on that note, we'll wrap it up. Thank you. Right, That's Tom. a fantastic, uh, fantastic conversation training for people. Uh, and thanks very much for being my guest. No worries. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. Thanks for listening. Your next step is to visit GetTractionPodcast.com. There you'll find all current episodes and a link to download a free copy of Tom's Deal Flow Cheat Sheet. Happy wholesaling!